Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Hello and welcome to episode 148 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. And joining us this evening, you know him best as the host of the Evolution of Horror podcast. You may also know him from the Urban Legend episode of this show. A massive warm welcome back to Mike Munster. Mike, good evening. Hello. Thank you. It's been so long, guys. Thank you for having me back. It has been an age. Mitch, you must have the numbers there. Of course I do. Mike, you first joined us way back in episode 43 for Urban Legend, and here we are. 105 main episodes later for episode 148 <laughs> so um well i love the fact that i was within at least your first 50 that makes me feel like an og i like it that's it right. you're still at like in on the ground floor territory with that Absolutely. i think for sure but you have come back and joined us for something a little bit different this time again we haven't done one of these in ages but obviously most of the time when we have somebody on the guest picks the film mike you were happy to spin the wheel with us um and go for a listener's choice well so were you mitch yeah true but yeah we so we took some submissions um over a period of a few weeks a little while ago uh we compiled those and ultimately the winning film for the listener's choice was terror vision uh which was actually a choice of two listeners so i guess balance of probabilities are coming out on top in the draw it had twice as good a chance as any of the rest of them but yeah it's selected by both fee bunny and chris scalp uh so first watch for me Andy, I'm guessing not a first watch for you. No, 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 no. Have you seen the amount of slime that's in this film? This was not a first watch for me. <laughs> and Mike, first watch for you? It was a first watch for me, yeah. It's always been kind of one of those movies that I've meant to check out, just never have, so this was the perfect... <laughs> opportunity to do that yeah um i i knew nothing about it at all going in other than the title good good best way to be off in fn because i was much the same and i knew the artwork and uh and the title and mm-hmm. uh, and that was it so i think that rather than doing a 30 second synopsis for this one seeing as uh, certainly two-thirds of us were kind of going in cold mm-hmm. andy i believe that you reached out to uh fee Bunny and got her assessment on why she chose it and i think that that might be as good a way to lead into this as any well yeah this actually came in with the the suggestion way back when we kind of put this out as something that we're, that we're planning and doing again obviously if anyone the last thing we did this was Harold the Duck so these have uh, historically felt a bit like punishment and I was hoping that this one wouldn't go that way and luckily enough here we are but Fee Bunny when asked uh, why she had chosen this rather than dig into detail just kind of listed off some things which I'll, I'll read to you now um, it's got a gross shiny alien that eats people but digs metal, a not-so-grandpa war enthusiast, a hot Elvira-esque character in the form of Medusa, Garrett Graham and Mary Warrenoff playing swinger parents with killer 80s decor and fashion sense, and an alien astronaut shows up. That last bit feels like uh, a kind of last-minute tag-on. But yeah, that's that's just kind of rough idea of the madness that you'll, you'll find in this film. I mean, that's kind of squashed most of the points I was going to make about what I liked about it, to be honest. Yeah. That's a pretty good summary isn't it of, uh, of what's to love about this movie <laughs> yeah i would agree i think it's a solid set of bullet points um yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah mike obviously we'll land on our specific thoughts as we go on you want to talk broadly about how you felt about this i loved it it was great um <laughs> you know it was uh, nuts wasn't it and uh, i kind of i really actually genuinely dug the look 
of this film like the vibe mm. of it, it re- i mean it's so it's so 80s it's almost like comic strip 80s isn't it yeah but i love the color of it and mm-hmm. and just the sort of the color palette the look the kind of wacky characters i love the creature design i know it's produced by charles band right of yeah. uh yeah. empire, empire international pictures and you know movies like from beyond and, and reanimator and stuff like that and it's not quite up to those movies but it does have a sort of vibe of some of those movies doesn't it i think mm. that uh, that kind of look i've really enjoyed it i had a lot of fun with it yeah yeah i kind of feel like a lot of the things that in isolation would kind of nip at me like some kind of like some kind of scenery chewing and some kind of cartoonish caricature elements and stuff like that they all feel like they're here very deliberately i kind of feel like everything's designed to be like yeah. amplified in this really kind of aggressively hyper real kind of way and you're right it just crams 80s into every available orifice which is also just like works 100 percent to its benefit <laughs> yeah yeah it, it is and i started to th- and i don't know whether i was overthinking it but i started to think that maybe it was cleverer than it was as it went on i was like oh you know like you said mitch i think a lot of those decisions are deliberate in terms of the acting the style this is clearly kind of like it feels a little bit like it's taking the piss out of television a little bit obviously from the title even and these characters kind of feel like sitcom characters or something at times as well and yeah i think every decision no matter how naff kind of felt deliberate in this film which i appreciated yeah if it it is serendipitous then it is very (laughs) serendipitous (laughs) yeah yeah i really like the fact that um in the kind of pre-credits for this you get planet pluton is your first kind of like title card which obviously sounds really kind of like imposing and exciting and then immediately sanitation department (laughs) i love this stuff i I love this first glimpse of pluton this really just shows that the film is not afraid of wearing its budget on its sleeve it's like look we've done our best here to recreate a planet um but as you can see it's blue petered together out of bits of lids like uh, yogurt pots um <laughs> right in the foreground uh, i read online that there's um the, the kind of main tower thing that you see in the foreground is a uss enterprise with the engines pulled off that's pretty cool that is cool yeah <laughs> it, ha- it certainly had charm didn't it it had a uh, quaint charm that kind of opening scene with the the little miniatures and models and everything i loved it like, it brings to mind kind of more modern things like uh, manborg and i'm just like uh, i love this uh-huh yeah Mm -hmm. specifically i like i say i love that i love the fact that our first look at pluton is this kind of like very bureaucratic and very specific kind of like government unit because it's the uh mutant creation disposal unit of the sanitation department now yeah we get our first look at our creature that we will only know as the hungry beast as this proceeds (laughs) i think that like i like this visual because you get enough of a feel for what the practical effects are going to look like but you don't like it doesn't show its hand too much in terms of like how fun the actual kind of full visual of it when you see it in the house and stuff like that later is going to be it gives it it's like it's kind of enough of a foreshadow Mm-hmm. But I kind of feel like the real fun with it comes a fair bit later. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You kind of get a sense, don't you, from the beginning of that kind of, it's kind of squishy and wet and it's got some teeth and it's got like a claw or something. <laughs> but yeah, you can't really see much more than that at this point. And so often with these sorts of movies, they can sort of let themselves down when they fully show the monster. But I kind of think the opposite about this one. I think it's actually so fun when the monster enters I, I i would characterize the full monster reveal in this as a triumph yes <laughs> <laughs> you also get a good look at pluton here the character of pluton not just the planet um kind of in the early running now the planet is called pluton the man is called pluton why is he in charge of sanitation that would be like a king <laughs> getting down and dirty in the sewer it's true 
I didn't actually realize his name was Pluton. That's uh, interesting. I, I feel like Pluton needs to delegate a little more. <laughs> well, if, if nothing else, it shows that he's a man who's not afraid to get his hands dirty. Absolutely. It's like an undercover boss situation. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, we see like what we understand to be a creature that's getting disposed of, because obviously we're in the mutant creation disposal sure. unit, but it's condensed into pure energy and shot into space. We see that laser pinballing off a couple of planets, and we're off into the kind of uh, the opening credits. Now, what I think is interesting about this is that obviously a fair bit later on, the process that we see here is explained to us by Platon when he arrives, and I was kind of like, I don't need this exposition, despite the fact that we're getting airdropped into this really weird situation. I understood completely what was happening there. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I think it was pretty clear. I mean, kudos to the visuals because we got it, didn't we? Like we absolutely got it at the beginning. I feel like, yep, okay, that's the setup. I get it. I know the drill. I know what's coming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like I was like, this is presumably like the uh, the Pluton equivalent of like crushing waste into a cube and lobbing it into a landfill. Yeah. I was like, understood. Where didn't it go? Or like yeah. putting some villains in a kind of cellophane cube and firing them off into space like in superman yeah i was thinking that very superman yeah Th this is the ballpark we're in and like yeah that required no further explanation for me see the song that plays over the opening titles i'm assuming it was written for purpose because <laughs> it would be incredibly <laughs> be incredibly fortuitous to find something like that yeah banger absolute <laughs> banger wasn't it i loved that opening uh title sequence that was I, great. I have absolute banger written here <laughs> it is absolute <laughs> banger isn't it it's so I good I yeah. felt like high, high basically in a B-52's energy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was very B-52. I thought the same thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, this yeah. is another Richard Band composition. Like he, Richard Band does most of the, the score for all of these things. He also like, famously did the score for Reanimator. Like he did the, the score for things like Puppet Master as well. So like this is exactly in his wheelhouse. And I have said it before on this show, Mitch, I love a theme song to a film that tells you everything you need to know about the film going in. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Like I, so, something that just very like something that actually that describes the events of the film as literally as possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and this was like, like few, a, this was like a couple of years before all, every film had like a rap version of the events of the film at the end. Like the Adams Family era Groove for expository songs. Yeah, the Adams <laughs> Family Groove, uh, Turtle Power by Partners in Crime. Yes, I still think that I still think that my all-time favorite example of this is the uh, crooner ballad at the end of Zombievers. <laughs> okay, um, that's my favorite iteration of the ex <laughs> like the exposition song. But we do meet Stanley Potterman at this point, whose uh, whose wife Raquel is furious at him for carrying out DIY satellite maintenance while she's watching her stories. <laughs> she's not watching her stories; she's watching keep fit videos. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we kind of get a little bit of a crash course of the entire Putterman family here because we also meet Stanley's father. Now, see the Granda in this situation. Yeah. Does he have a name? Gra uh, Gramps. Just Gramps. Just Gramps. That was my understanding, but I don't like missing. Th I don't like missing things like that. But I wanted to check. I know. I know. Obviously, it's it's a kind of fairly low budget studio set, but mm -hmm. they sort of look like they're on another planet in this opening, like this introduction to this family when they're outside setting up their satellite and everything. It's like, where is this yeah. in the world? You know, it's amazing. <laughs> there is not a yeah. single thing in this film that is real. Like yeah. <laughs> everything is a set. Like yeah. skies are fake. <laughs> Walls are made out of polystyrene <laughs> blocks. Everything is fake in this film. You just, you just, you've just made me think that at no point did I really believe that the events of this were happening on planet Earth. <laughs> no, no, never. They, you never believe. I mean, we never really leave this house, do we? And we never believe that, like, just down the road, there's a 
there's a town or anything. It's yeah. like they're, they're in their own little biosphere in this little yeah. uh, house, you know? <laughs> the most bizarre family and most bizarre house you've ever seen. I, I did yeah. notice there's a bit later where some, I'm sure someone's on the phone. Is it when he's phoning the police or something? But he says that they, they live on Putterman Road. I Isn't mean, that the, the name of the family? Yeah, so I don't yes. know if they're the Puttermans of Putterman what? Road. So, so like, this is like Pluton on Pluton, Puttermans on Putterman Road. What's yeah. happening here? <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you what's happening here, Mike. A strong, strong through line of nominative determinism is what's going on here. <laughs> But yeah, Gramps, uh, we can tell that he's an eccentric former military man because he's still wearing all of his army gear, but he also has a hat with loads of toy planes stuck to it. Just in case there was any doubt that it's set in the 80s, uh, he's like nuclear survivalist maniac, isn't he, as well, with his bunker and all of that kind of thing. Uh, brilliant. Yeah, my favourite thing that happens in the kind of early running of when we meet Gramps is when he talks about how, like, downtown isn't what it used to be. But, like, when he's describing that, it's because he was downtown disseminating his literature. I was like, I really want to read one of those pamphlets. <laughs> I like that, when he's just like, oh, nobody wants to talk anymore. And it's just like, because you have toy ha- like toy planes stuck to your hat, mate. Like, <laughs> You're that guy on the bus that always sits next to me. I'm like, oh no, that's the guy with the planes on his heart. He's going to start telling me about eating lizard tails again. Yeah, but in the, in the kind of like whip round of character introductions that we get here, we also meet uh, Sherman, mm. grandson. Yep. I would say similar military leanings because he's also just decked out in army gear for the entire time. Yeah. Corrupted by his grandfather because this isn't something that's handed down through the family i don't think i don't really get a military vibe from stan <laughs> at all to be the honest parents the parents are very much make love not war aren't they let's be honest i <laughs> think that is yeah like with with literally anybody yeah. <laughs> uh, their house is very much like quagmires from family guy <laughs> oh my god it is it is yeah. like that like you expect like the furniture like the sofa to open up or you know like something uh, so true. also every surface has tips yeah yeah the artwork some of the artwork in the on the walls <laughs> and everything it was phenomenal wasn't it you're, you're right though Mike as well just like just every every inch of this environment is just like really striking in this weirdly cartoonish way yeah it's um, like watching a cartoon isn't it in a way yeah Stanley is getting very irritated outside trying to get this uh, the satellite up and running no wonder because he he is being kind of like egged on by the repairman who has just turned up to be useless and uh, and steal all his beer. He's not dressed like a repairman. I, I find myself questioning exactly what Norton does. If he's a repairman, he is dressed incredibly loosely for that job because he is. He's like I don't he's know. Straight out of a John Waters movie or something, <laughs> isn't he? It's very strange. Yeah. I don't know who he thinks he is dressing like that. Quite frankly, with his incredibly wide pink tie tucked into his incredibly high waisted work trousers. The fact that his tie is tucked into his trousers is the only thing that makes me think that he might be a handyman because you don't want your tie getting in the way. Safety first. Okay, but yeah, during this exchange, we do see the satellite dish picking up what we again a hundred percent we understand with complete clarity that that is the same <laughs> laser that we spotted earlier on, the same kind of beam. I think it's really funny when they go back in and he's like, "Right, it's ready to go," and the guy, the family gather around the tv for like the big unveiling of the new satellite dish and they watch like what looks like a public domain war film and he's like the look at the check out the dino picture oh, yeah yeah mitch i feel i need to drag you back a minute because you have missed out one of the most crucial characters in the film in the form of Susie. yes yeah yeah, yeah. a big kelly bundy energy from manning with children for me oh, no, right. okay is this the cindy lauper sister 
Yes. I wrote down Cindy Lauper. Yeah. 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 Like she was just like put in a dark room and set loose and then when the lights came on she was just allowed to roll around in the 1980s. I love it. It was like you've got all your 80s kind of archetypes haven't you? You've got your Cindy Lauper you've got your kind of survivalist nut job Uh, you've got your like Jane Fonda workout video woman you know it's great and then you've got OD (laughs) oh yeah OD what a name as well (laughs) this film doesn't stop for breath pretty much the entire time because before we meet OD they happen on this horror thon which is as Fiori correctly pointed out was hosted by this um, Elvira surrogate Mm-hmm. Medusa and Sherman and his grandfather are like settling in for this marathon and it is at this point that OD arrives who is the most curious combination of elements I think <laughs> early on I think OD is an absolute wanker but then I think when he comes back later I really grow to like OD like I, I find something quite charming about him later yeah he kind of he becomes one of the more endearing characters in the sort of second half doesn't yeah, he but... yeah yeah at the first appearance, he he just kind of spirals into this house and just acts like an absolute ass. Um, <laughs> so it is refreshing later when we do kind of become a little bit more attached to him, briefly. Yeah, I would say br- briefly is the kind of briefly is the keyword. Um, <laughs> what I think is funny here as well is that so Odie's coming over to kind of like hang out with Susie while the parents go out for the evening. We don't understand where they're headed just yet, and she's like, "Oh, can we use the jacuzzi?" And they're like, no. And I was like, well, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to uh, disbar your teenage daughter from doing with her boyfriend that you've just met. But And I was like, presumably that's why. You know, it's like they just don't think that that's appropriate. And no, it's not that at all. It's in case they need it for the swinging that they're about to do at the cha-cha room. (laughs) (laughs) They're very kind of open about this whole thing as well, aren't they? And their plans for the evening and everything. And you get the feeling their kids are just, they know about it. They're just like, oh, guys, you know. I think... Given the decor in the house, it's impossible yeah. for you not to know that your your parents have a particularly active and varied sex life. Yeah, it's very true. Good for them. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. But I actually think that Garrett Graham and Mary Warrenov are pretty great in this. Uh, there's some stuff later with Garrett Graham that hasn't aged particularly well, but yeah. for the most part, I think the, the two of them are great. They seem to be enjoying themselves. Yeah, they all just seem to be having the most fun, don't they? I think all of these performers just absolutely going for it yeah i i, I think so and andy like you th- like you touched on it and i think that like see like films of this ilk from this era i think generally age far worse than this one does i think yeah. that it largely kind of gets there with that there's not really too much stuff that makes you kind of go eh. no the thing i would say about television is aside from that one moment later it's actually quite a nice, innocent film. There's not like, too much in here that's going to like disturb or stress anyone out. It's quite sweet in a lot of ways and, and almost, almost child-friendly. And that way, yeah. kind of 80s sci-fi kids' movies were. Like, but it was almost as if they went, nah, this is an Empire film. Go back and have some people's heads melting, please. Yeah, add in a bit of schlock. Yeah, it's true, though. You're right. It like Tonally, it really does feel like you're watching a, a- a kids comedy film or something yeah. i think doesn't it yeah a couple of things that i think are funny here uh we find out that yeah you mentioned it earlier that gramps is sustainable food source for the apocalypse is lizard tails because they're regenerative delicious and can be harvested with no pain to the animal mm. fair play <laughs> the holy trinity yeah <laughs> But straight off the back of this, we see um, Raquel and Stanley getting ready to go out. And they talk about the fact that, because obviously, like, um, OD is this metaler, which he wears on his sleeve, or he would if he had any sleeves. <laughs> um, 
But uh, I love the fact that you just see, because he's talking about OD looking weird, and he just turns around and he's like, but doesn't he understand how ridiculous he looks as he puts on this giant medallion that extends like a foot and a half down his torso? <laughs> I love that yeah. moment. So good. Yeah, really, I, like, I think really funny. But yeah, everyone's kind of headed away at this point, apart from uh, Gramps and Sherman. Where, and we kind of get we get an inkling of the fact that um, the Hungry Beast has been zapped into the TV. I mean, we understand that anyway, but we get his kind of, we kind of first look at that. Now, Sherman falls asleep before anything gets too lascivious, but it does feel like midway through this horrorthon that's hosted by Medusa, it kind of like briefly pivots to becoming almost a sex line. Yeah, that's yeah. what I couldn't quite work out. I was like, is this some sort of horror marathon meets babe station or something? <laughs> <laughs> it, really, it did get really weird in the middle there, didn't it? With El, with Elvira. Yeah, that uh, was a very strange moment. Frankenstation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I just remember thinking she's like, I want to know what you creeps are up to. I was like, Jesus Christ, what's going on here? Well, you, you, you don't. You, you, you don't. <laughs> don't open yourself up to that. But yeah, impressionable eyes seeing nudity or gore is kind of the least of their worries because at this point, the Hungry Beast escapes from the TV and eats Gramps. Um, I love that, because this, I think, is kind of like a monster reveal of sorts. And I I think especially the kind of like little one-eyed appendage Sure. Yeah. Is a, is I think my favorite part in this moment. I actually think the the reveal here is amazing when it's kind of creeping up on Sherman and you don't really know what you're dealing with here. And he's kind of woken up, I suppose, or kind of pulled out from those kind of dying stages of sleep by the big eye that you mentioned earlier. And he obviously freaks out and screams at that. And then Gramps rockets up. And that's when we get our first kind of look at the the Hungry Beast, which uh, is right behind Mike, actually, as we speak. Um, And it's kind of that image that we see. It's like that face filling the screen. Uh, just slime and teeth and that big eye and I think for that very brief second it's just it's brilliant it's an, it's an amazing creature reveal it's a great mix isn't it of sort of quite disgusting and threatening and also kind of adorable at the same yeah. time like there's something kind of sweet about this monster as well I, I can't I really loved the creature it was great and that's that's kind of I think why the film works so well round about the hour mark when O.D. and Susie and Sherman they're kind of building this relationship with the creature and trying to train yeah. it and like it becomes E.T. or something yeah doesn't yeah it, and point. they do make yeah. a they do kind of make a joke on that uh, in the film they, they mention E.T. I, I think if the creature was terrifying which it isn't it's pretty goofy looking <laughs> but if it was terrifying I think it, that would never have worked. I think that the fact that its face is permanently contorted into this incredibly wide smile means that it never really stands a chance of being intimidating, even when it's killing people. <laughs> it's just having such a lovely time. <laughs> this is it. I, I remember thinking as well, and we'll get to it, but obviously you spoke about it there where they kind of do this kind of like introducing the monster to music and TV and like earth food and stuff like that in this kind of really fun bit that we'll get to in a while. And I remember thinking, I was just like, I didn't see that coming, but also I just remember sitting there being like, well this is delightful (laughs) (laughs) but in this moment uh granddad or gramps rather he doesn't believe that there's a monster here because monsters couldn't possibly exist so he which is crazy to me because it doesn't i don't know if it necessarily fits the character but he decides not monster burglar now look at it yeah yeah, like I, he he mistakes the presence of this gigantic slimy tubular cyclops attached to this beast. <laughs> it's like no human intruder. Everyone to the fallout shelter. 
and burglar is so specific as well. Like he doesn't just say criminal person, murderer, yeah. nothing. It's like burglar specifically as well. That is very strange thing to deduce. Like, no, when he not conf- only is this gigantic, slimy, deformed creature human, it's also after our possessions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when it, when uh, Gramps confronts Norton outside uh, in a minute, he asks him, "Have you got a, a, like a Halloween mask in your pocket?" And the one's <laughs> like, "No, why?" Right? Could you imagine if he produced a like a, a mask or a mask that would have represented what we'd just seen, being like, "Oh yeah, sorry, you got me." <laughs> the greatest mask of all time. Yeah. Yeah. Here is this four foot by eight foot mask. <laughs> How do I find that mask? It's amazing. Yeah. But it's quite gross when he does actually sort of pick up Gramps and squish oh, him and eat him, and he does a thing where he sort of hoovers him up afterwards as well like it's yeah it's uh it's pretty cool that whole sequence yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah the pencils kind of i don't know if they like inject some kind of melting stuff into like some kind of acid but he essentially like bubbles away to nothing like kind of like in the fly and yeah. then um uh, the hungry beast just kind of has this proboscis that kind of just like just sucks them back up. It's uh, it's an entirely great experience. Uh, and John Carl Buchler's effects work, I think, is pretty good in this. He's generally, or he was generally great. But uh, yeah, there's just something that just gets me right where I live here. It's very cool, <laughs> isn't it? I loved it. Uh, after we do lose Gramps, and I do think it's funny, by the way, that when he when he initially takes him down to the when he takes him down to the fallout shelter, he's like, "Remember what I taught you," and he just hands him like a semi-automatic, and I'm like, "It's not surprising at all to me that Gramps is fine with giving firearms to children." That's very consistent yeah. with what we understand about him up to that point. He's what? definitely that guy. I mean, he's got loads of Confederate flags on the inside uh, of his yeah. bunker as well, yeah. doesn't he? <laughs> what is this yeah, fucking um, house, by the way? Like, like the at the bottom level is like. Uh, live out the rest of your days atomic bunker and the top level is just a sex layer <laughs> it's all the things you need post-apocalypse all right like it's everything you could want yeah uh, like a fallout shower then when everything's kind of like blown over your repopulation den yeah a sex dungeon or whatever exactly <laughs> it's uh it's amazing i love well it. if you call it a sex dungeon mike it sounds gross <laughs> <laughs> oh it's just me all right okay <laughs> Sherman tries to relay this information to the police at this point. They entirely understandably think that he's talking shit. Mm-hmm. However, uh, we do understand at this point that uh, Stanley and Raquel's expedition to the Chacha room has been successful. They have come home with a couple of willing swingers. Uh, Cherry and Spiro. Yeah, Spiro. Spiro is one of my favourite characters in this. I love him. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of the film, actually. A big chunk of the film that is just banter between these couples. Yeah. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with the monster or anything at this point, right? I think it's funny that so much of the like kind of like second act of this is just like Sharon being like Grandpa is dead and there is a monster in the house and the mom being like Would you shut the fuck up? Don't yeah. ruin this for me. Yeah. I just want to fucking get laid. Like come on, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's not happening as well. Spiro is beating us to death with how Greek he is. Like, he's, <laughs> he's like, Do you have any oozle? And I'm like, Oh for fuck's sake, Spiro, we get it. Your first name's Greek. That's enough. So true. Then they really, they really hammer that home, don't they? I love it. I do think it's funny that like they get home and they're obviously, you know, kind of like at that kind of like peak point in the night out when everyone is the correct amount of drunk and everyone's just kind of buzzing. Sure. And they come in, they start bragging about their like uh, excellent lavish home, and it's like I actually think as well if I was in that situation that when they come home and it's like, oh, you have a beautiful home, and it's like, yeah, the best thing is how far it is from all the local towns. I was like weird <laughs> it's te- it's yeah it's pretty creepy and threatening isn't it that <laughs> 
And you, you I'm, 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 like, not to the air, apparently, they blow straight past it, but I thought it was weird. Yeah, you hauled like, Mike over saying pleasure dungeon or whatever it was. Like, speaking of which, <laughs> on the tour of the house here that uh, Garrett Graham gives Spiro, he takes them to a room that he calls the pleasure zone. He takes them to another room which is called the pleasure den. And then the third room with the jacuzzi is the pleasure dome, um, popularized by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. <laughs> I believe as well that um, when he fixes up the satellite at the start, he says, Pleasure Palace, here we come. What is this house? <laughs> we get our first kind of like Pluton TV PSA here of a few, where kind of uh, Pluton appears being like, Attention Earth people, something terrible has happened. Please turn your TVs off for 200 years. <laughs> but what you're not getting across there, which is the urgent pleading that Pluton constantly has. He's like, Hello! Can anyone hear me? Earthlings, please! please it is incredibly frenetic, isn't please. it? Please! <laughs> no one for a minute like believes that this is anything other than just a mad channel. Almost like some public... What's that stuff called? Like public access? Is that what it's called in America? Where yeah. anyone can make anything? Like Wayne's World? I just get yeah. it on the TV. Like It's mad to me that they would think, oh, check this guy out. Yeah, look at this weird late night... Uh... <laughs> Art house broadcast that's going on. <laughs> yeah, I love the fact that it's like, unfortunately, Captain, your broadcast happened right in the middle of a horrorthon, and everybody just thought it was a weird film. Yeah, <laughs> horror slash pornathon or whatever that is. <laughs> yeah. We learn at this point as well that the hungry beast can assume human form, or at least can like weekend at Bernie's things enough to convince people that they're still alive. Um, which he does here with Gramps to make Raquel think that Sherman is crazy when he's like, Grandpa's dead. No question at all as to why Grandad is covered, dripping in slime. Yeah, I wrote that down. I was, She was like, because he appears and he's like, I'm fine, I'm taking care of business. And it's like, yeah, okay, fair enough. From her point of view, he's demonstrably alive, but he is covered in a viscous brown goo. Yeah, he still, he <laughs> and still looks gross, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. she's like, see, nothing to worry about. Uh, it's, I got real, like, Brian Usner's Society yeah. vibes, right? And there's a yeah. scene later on where they're all in bed together and it is like something out of society, isn't it? It's, uh, yeah, pretty yeah. gross. That's <laughs> one of my top five films of all time there, Mike. So, uh, yes. So good, so good. Yeah, love it, love it, love it, front to back. At this point, to uh, stop Sherman from killing their swinging buzz, she kind of lobs him into the bomb shelter and locks the door. She could have handled that better, I think, rather than locking your child in a bomb shelter. Somewhere that he's also pretty scared to be. He's making it quite clear that, for whatever reason, he doesn't want to go in there. And to lock him in there, to me, feels incredibly cruel in that moment it's such an 80s thing as well isn't it yeah. i think that like the adults are shit and these oh, I... kids have got to fend for themselves basically that's uh, pretty much how the events of home alone take place because all the adults are absolute assholes to kevin his mum in particular locks him in the attic when he doesn't want to be up there and yeah. we know how that we know how that th- those events we shook know how out that goes down yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> Over and above anything else, most importantly, it seems at this point like the whole swinging endeavour is going pretty well. (laughs) You know, our front four in the situation are getting on fine. A jacuzzi has entered proceedings, Mm. but unfortunately Spiro, in all his Greekness, devoured by the monster. The first to go. Uh, uh, Prior to that, there there is... uh, I don't think he's the first one to go, because he's lured into the water by Cherry, or what we believe is Cherry, and also what we believe is water. Uh, as in fact slime <laughs> um, but no so I'm guessing Cherry's actually the first one to go 
Um, and I thought, I guess so, yeah. Where you were going with the in all his Greekness comment was the fact that it kind of turns out that Spiro has only his eyes for Stan, which because is he's Greek. <laughs> because he's Greek, that's it. That he, he tells us that again, and uh, yeah, that's the point where it gets a bit. Oh, mm, mm, wait, stop it, Stan. Yeah, yeah Stan's reaction to it is kind of... And not what I was expecting. I kind of figured that this pair would be pretty open and liberal, right? I mean, like, that's kind of the vibes you'd expect. <laughs> yes, very much, like, progressive until they aren't. Yeah, right. <laughs> he does not yeah, I didn't, react well to that. I did not expect his response to be like, well, I'm going to go give him a piece of my mind. He's like, oh, right, I see. Yeah. Okay. I think it's fair enough for Spiro to have assumed that maybe that was on the cards for him, right? I mean, like, given that, you know, what was yeah. happening and what was on offer. <laughs> yep, strong anything goes. Yeah, anyway. he obviously yeah. has a relationship with Cherry as well because he, when he gets into the, the pool with her or the, the jacuzzi with her, he's like, let's just have a quickie. So, like, yeah. I mean, he, he's obviously a man who's just, uh, he's an anything goes type of guy. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's it's sad, actually. I'm, I'm more sad for Spiro that his night ends on an unpleasant note yeah. like that, where he, he would have been faced with discriminatory language. Yeah, he just got into his jacuzzi of what he thought was lube or something, right, as well, and he thought he was in for a he long says, time. He says, is this algae? Yeah. I was like, Why is algae the first place you go to? Like, it's yeah. algae. That would be gross, <laughs> in many ways grosser than slime. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, what a remarkable first place for your brain to go. <laughs> but yeah, Stanley going downstairs to give uh, to give Spiro a piece of his mind does not go well. Everything deteriorates pretty dramatically at this point, I would say. Yeah. <laughs> Stanley savaged by the monster. Raquel is like, is it kind of like is what happens to her off camera? Yeah, yeah. You just kind of see the mouth closing in. And then that's that's that. But Odie and Susie come back at this point, and I think it's really funny that Odie calls Sherman army dude because I just chose to assume that he'd mistaken him for a real army general. <laughs> he has he gives off that energy. Yeah, I think so. I also think it's funny that at this point he comes like uh, Sherman comes upstairs and he meets him at the door and he explains everything that's happened so far. But rather than taking it at face value, Susie kind of hints at the fact that Sherman has a history of uh, paranoid rants about his family dying under unusual circumstances. So it's like kind of a cry-wolf situation. People make that kind of comment about him a lot. So there is obviously something going on because the mum is constantly threatening to jam his pills down his throat and stuff like that. So that's something that goes on quite a lot in this film that is never really, really, really explored. Some dark stuff going on really under the surface. (laughs) I get the impression that if we were observing this family on any other day, (laughs) <laughs> it would be scarier than the events of this film. Yeah, it'd be more fucked up. Because yeah. <laughs> ultimately, they take the loss of their parents with remarkable calmness and, and, and coolness. Like they're, they're not really bothered, and I think in a lot of ways, it's probably making things a bit easier for them. <laughs> they're quite happy to see them go, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, nobody's really established that this is a pattern of erratic events yet. Everybody continues to collectively ignore all the alien threats on TV of impending chaos. And puddles of slime on the floor that used to be people. Like There's a there's a bit earlier where the mum's like fingering her dad's slime puddle and I was like, ah, oh, that's unsettling to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't care for it. But yeah, I, th- I, th- I think at this point it's fair to say that there's like a pattern of red flags that people are kind of willfully missing. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. I also think it's funny that like, because at this point I think that all of the kind of like adults in this are basically have all been kind of consumed by the monster at this point, mm-hmm. right? And they go upstairs and uh, they find what appears to be Gramps in bed with 
everyone who came home from the cha-cha room. And they slam the door shut and Susie says to Sherman, someday you'll understand. And I was like, I'm really not sure that that's true. I'd like to understand that now. (laughs) (laughs) I think the reveal of Gramps' head popping out is hilarious. It's so good. Uh, OD establishes himself as being kind of like the monster whisperer here. Yeah, I still don't know why. Something to do with the fact that he wears studs, like he wears like studded gauntlets. Yeah, I have no idea. But this is where he becomes a bit more bearable at this point, OD, doesn't he? Yeah, I'm kind of glad that they took him that road because I think there's another way you could have taken that where because he now has this monster under his control, he becomes an even more unbearable asshole like that little girl in Psycho Gorman who I was just like, oh, Get her off my screen. I, I was I, I worry that perhaps OD is going to go that road, but he he actually softens up a bit and shares his monster. It's true. It's quite a little sweet sort of segment of the film at this point, right? When they're teaching the monster stuff or feeding it or whatever. Yeah, this is I think this is like a lot of the best stuff for me. Mm-hmm. When they realise that there's kind of like rather than just perceiving the monster as this large non-specific threat, they kind of establish this line of communication, and then they're like, "Well, let's just show you a little bit about the world that you're in." Yeah, yeah, I think it's all really quite charming. <laughs> it is. It really is. Yeah, this is probably my favourite section as well. Loved it. Yeah, because like because uh, like they they teach them about earth food that isn't humans. Which is always nice. Sure. And some music. OD obviously uses this opportunity to plug his terrible metal band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, he, he doesn't care for it. Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. No. At this point as well, though, we kind of like so we have this very charming montage of them introducing him to like TV. Obviously, his first exposure to TV is Medusa. Um, but yeah, food, music, all that kind of thing. At this point, I was disappointed to hear that Susie and Sherman were seeing dollar signs and they were looking for ways to exploit this for profit. This was at the point where like I pivoted to being like, I hope that this is a metaphor for capitalist greed and they all get eaten. Well, you yeah. might well get your wish, Mitch. <laughs> sooner than you think my friend uh, I, there's actually a bit that we missed where um, earlier on when uh, he, he, no one's listening to him he's kind of he, he feels a bit alone in the world he doesn't know what, where to turn and Sherman phones that Medusa sex line thing to uh, essentially say look I've got a monster in my house if you fancy coming over and having a look and she says no but that's very similar to the whole kind of story of Fright Night like where uh young scared kid calls a horror host to help him in a, in a crisis situation which i quite like yeah i had that exact same thing written down as well it felt very fright night that yeah. kind of well she's a horror movie host therefore she must know how to get rid of a a real alien monster threat that's in my house uh i loved it <laughs> I think it's funny that at this point, because like Sherman's tried to phone the police a couple of times and they're like, we're fed up of your prank calls, we're going to come and arrest you. I wrote down that when the policeman shows up to do that, because the policeman just turns up to basically just be another character to get eaten sure. by the Hungry Beast, but he turns up and I said that he had the acting chops of a stripper impersonating a police officer. <laughs> okay. <Very much> so. <laughs> but you, um, you could say that about any character in this film at any given moment, though, Mitch. Really? I suppose that that's true, actually. Yeah, it's possibly unfair to me to single him out. But he just exists um, purely to be one more character that they can introduce and die. Like, uh, there's no there's, there's no real value with him coming. I'd have been happy if he was just a voice on the phone the whole film. I mean, yeah, I guess. But I think, like, the death is still fun, I think. Like, I guess it, it kind of earns it's kind of earns its stripes for that. My favourite individual moment in the whole film, I think, potentially happens at this point when you see the Hungry Beast sitting in a room by himself watching films about aliens attacking Washington and you just see that happening and it just cuts back and he's just like pissing himself laughing at it. 
See, he's lovely. <laughs> he's got a sense of humor. Now, Mike, you mentioned this before we started that I think that like you have a hard time ever really perceiving uh, the hungry beast as a threat. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of, I, I, I love that little squishy guy. He's great. <laughs> uh, yeah, he does eat quite a few people, to be fair. But there's definitely something quite endearing about him, isn't there? As, as the kids find as well. Like for mm. a big chunk of this movie, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then Pluton comes back. He comes back. Before that, though, OD dies because he does get a bit, I uh, guess, a bit aggressive with uh, the Hungry Beast, and that doesn't go down well at all. And he is immediately savaged, which I, I quite like as well. It's like, if you, because Pluton's like, don't do anything that's going to annoy him or aggravate him. If you do make any loud noises, he's going to freak out and he'll eat everyone. And uh, yeah, so he kind of eats OD, and then he, he chills out for a, a period of time until Pluton comes. And Pluton's arrival is just one of the silliest looking things I've ever seen. Where he's got that baggy homemade spacesuit on, it's just I love, I love it. It's so goofy, so so dumb. <laughs> it is great. He is a he's a funny that Pluton's a funny character as well. He's a, a nice little addition at this point in the film. Yeah, there's there's what in one of his uh, broadcasts earlier. There's a bit where he's like, he's genuinely like apologetic for all the the trouble that he's caused. He's like, I I don't know if your planet still exists. Uh, it's possible you've all been eaten by now. Uh, <laughs> I just just please know that I'm very very sorry. Yeah, he's just having a really terrible day, isn't he, Pluton? Well, he's worried. He mentioned something about like when he finds out that the that the hungry beast's been eating people. He's like. Oh my god, I'm gonna get fired! Yeah. Like, but like, who are you? Like, you, you're Pluton from Pluton. Who's firing Pluton? There's a sad, tragic story I think there to to Pluton. I think and what's become of him. But yeah, he's thinking about getting fired, worried about a mountain of paperwork he's got to deal with for oh. this whole mishap. You know? <laughs> yeah, he's gonna get quite... dragged over the coals when he gets back. <laughs> it's it's kind of funny that I think that also when he arrives in the living room and starts explaining what's going on, we kind of understand that the hungry beast is basically the equivalent of what for what here would be like a mutated house cat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like it's like oh, like it would just be a pet, but then it just kind of went funny, so we have to just kind of like compress it and shoot it into the space. <laughs> It's so funny when you say it like that. Like, it's so... Yeah, but like, um, I also think it's really funny that he comes in. Just like he seems, if, I I think that he feels quite authoritative when he first arrives, but then the minute they're like, oh, he's actually eating a couple of people, he's like, oh my god, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah, the sudden panic kicks in at that moment. And I was like, did you really not entertained in your brain at all that this might have happened? I don't even like, think it's panic. I, I think he's more just like, right, uh. So he's eating folk. Uh, um, uh, I've got, uh, I've got some lies to tell. <laughs> but it's that whole uh, like a dog's not just for Christmas; it's for life thing. Like you shouldn't just be blasting off your pets into outer space when you don't like them anymore. That's the real moral of this story. Exactly. Uh-huh. Spend a bit of time with this guy, you know. Give him some love. <laughs> yeah, like as, as as it turns out, he's like a, he's like a UFO movie buff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he's not so hot on metal. Yeah, just like yeah, just like just take a little bit of time. Get him on the next um, series of Evolution Horror, Mike. Yeah, uh, happily. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, voiced by Frank Welker, which anytime I see that blows my mind because he's done some of the best animal and creature and robot voices ever. Uh, he's he's incredible. 
Yeah. Medusa shows up at this point to investigate the beast party that she was promised on the phone. Get the distinct impression that she's not getting what she signed up for here, but also completely misreads the situation and kills Pluton, mistaking him for the beast. Well, no, she comes in and he he's standing there with a gun trained on two kids, and she's like, nah, fuck you, mate. Uh, and, and what is, yeah, you're right, like, a fairly just action in the moment. Backfires horribly um, and spectacularly. I love the fact that she still has her Medusa hair at this point as well. <laughs> Yeah. Like she's. I'm assuming it's not supposed to be her real hair in the movie, although maybe it is, who knows, but it's... Uh She's not sort of come out of character at all at this point. I also think it's funny, actually, like, before this, because, like, they call it a second time, obviously, but, like, which we mentioned, but, like, just before that, her show actually ends. And I remember thinking, I was like, when she comes off the air, is she just still contactable by that phone line all the time? <laughs> is this her living room? It's just her home number, yeah. Yeah, so like, is that, is, that, is that just her landline phone number? I mean, we've seen weirder living rooms in this film already, so yeah. very possibly, yeah. Absolutely. But yeah, this is kind of the death knell for the whole situation. She um, did what I think absolutely reads as the right thing in the moment, but she's kind of like signed everyone's death warrant because at this point, the Hungry Beast consumes our remaining survivors who are Sherman, Susie, and Medusa herself with his giant vacuum esophagus yeah i like that like, and i think the actual the little kind of scene right before the credits it's just spectacular but again speaks to how unobservant people are in this film when people come like people are constantly coming out of rooms covered in slime and no one questions it <laughs> no with the kind of antics these people get up to they're just like all right fine yeah, actually whatever. probably not the first time that people have come out <laughs> no, dripping in comes, fluids from that this house. guy dripping in luby algae whatever it might be yeah yeah but you, yeah you're right i think there's a, like that's kind of like a through line in the whole film when people react to stuff you're just kind of like what passes for normal here on an average day <laughs> On Potterman so Street. On so many questions. Oh yeah, what goes on on Potterman Street, honestly? Oh you mentioned, the, Andy, that our final kind of stinger scene here with Medusa's chauffeur getting woken up by this kind of like scaly, deformed Medusa complete with this weird eye appendage. Uh, being like, take me to the TV studio. I think that it's like, it's a perfectly cartoonish ending to a perfectly cartoonish film. Yeah, yeah I love it. Agreed. It's really fun, isn't it? I love that the eye coming out and everything. It's really, it's really fun ending. Yeah, I think that like in terms of just kind of like matching the tone of what's come before it, it can't really get it much more right. But um, with that, all too soon we're out on television. Um, Andy. Yes. Uh, I kind of feel like none of us have really made any secret of how much we got out of this. But yeah, thumbs up. Uh, absolutely. Um, I'm a big Empire Pictures guy, and um, this one's up there for me. It's it's up there with things like From Beyond, and it's up there with, I guess, even things like, like it's way above things like Cellar Dweller for me as well. Like, this is not the pinnacle, but it holds a special place in my heart. Like, I, I watched this so, so many times when I was younger, and uh, I watched my Blu-ray of it uh, earlier because again like I did a couple of weeks ago Mitch totally forgot I had it and I went on to buy it on Amazon knowing that I was going to like, that, while I was watching it knowing that I was going to do this and I was like I've got that Blu-ray uh, it's a double Blu-ray with this and the video dead so I, I dug it out and wound up watching my Blu-ray so uh, <laughs> uh, I think I need a, a clean out or some kind of cataloging system but I, I can't recommend this film enough to people I, I think it's just like I say it's it's got that weird 80s kids on bikes charm that I think had they maybe cut out some of the squashed heads and swinger chat it probably could have got released to like to a kids audience and kids would have had a, an absolute blast with it as well like <sighs> 
I just love it. Love it to bits. And I, I just keep looking at Mike and seeing the hungry beast peering over his shoulder, and it just fills me with joy. Look at that big fucking eye. I'm keeping. I'm keeping that picture from work meetings tomorrow. Good. I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Mitch Bain, um, tell me your yeah. thoughts. Tell me your thoughts, Mitch. I, I, I had a great time with this. Um, I kind of had a feeling. Uh, I just kind of like from early doors, I was like, yeah, we're on the right lines here. We're in the right ballpark. I'm going to take to this. I found it like a very easy train to get on. Yeah. And I think that it sets out its stall so effectively um, in the first five, 10 minutes that I think that if for anyone that's kind of going to check this out off the back of this conversation, I think that like um, you will know within five or 10 minutes whether or not you're going to take to it and nothing in the intervening 80 minutes will change your mind. Yeah. But I think that, yeah, if you're able to get on board with this right from the outset, I think that there's like a lot of fun to be had with this but uh but mike this was the first watch for you as well and we kind of touched on it a little bit at the top but it sounds like you had a good time with this too yeah i had a lot of fun with it it was great i mean i would say it's like it's it's a sort of it's comedy first right and sort of horror second in a way but it, it's really fun my only regret is is watching it by myself and this is the problem with lockdown mm. because i really am looking forward to being able to watch movies like this with other human beings and a few yeah. beers and have a bit of a laugh with it, you know, um, I think that's what this film merits is that kind of a watch, like a communal watch, you know, um, I mm. would definitely recommend it for that purpose. Like get your mates around, get a few beers and have a bit of a laugh with it because it is fucking bonkers, isn't it? From start <sighs> to finish. It's superb. Yeah. Super. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, uh, IMDb tells me that Bradford's finest television uh, actually took their name from this film. We did wonder that. Yeah, yeah but I was like, is. I'm not entirely sure of the veracity of that. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll reach out to somebody from television on Twitter or something and confirm that. I've had yeah. uh, perseverance in my head all week because <laughs> of this film. Um. <laughs> Mike. Thanks for uh, spinning the wheel on a film that you didn't pick. Um, yeah. <laughs> obviously, like I've like a little bit of a variation on what we normally do. So um, yeah, so thanks for being willing to go in blind. Um, no, no worries. That was great fun. Thanks for having me. Uh, before you go, um, obviously the kind of main kind of three line of evolution of horror um, on hiatus at the moment but big things in the pipeline yeah we're coming back for a new series of episodes funnily enough about aliens and monsters and from outer space and that kind of look thing. at that look at that uh, so yeah like that's going to be kicking off in about a month's time at the point we're recording this uh, we'll be covering everything from like the early Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast all the way through to like the biggies like Alien and The Thing and Invasion of the Body Snatchers and then recent mm -hmm. stuff like Benson and Moorhead movies and mm. Alex Garland movies and like a bunch of really cool kind of cosmic stuff from the last 10, 20 years. So yeah, nice. really excited. Amazing. Yeah, it sounds, like, um, it sounds like about as broad a spectrum as you can have within a subgenre, I would say. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, absolutely. And so much interesting stuff uh, sort of going on in the background of all these movies sort of uh, yeah. as they've evolved. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Aside from that, anything else that you want to let people know about? Anything else? I mean, I also produce the BBC Inside Cinema, uh, which is, uh, you can find that on iPlayer. It's like loads of fun little video essays that are written mm -hmm. and voiced by different people, all produced and edited by me. And there's different stuff on there. There's like a... Uh, everything from like a whole little video essay about the Wilhelm scream to like uh, I've done one about the history of the jump scare and it's like all kind of things like that so uh, fun little movie videos all available there that's BBC Inside Cinema amazing Mike this has been so much fun it's been so nice to have you back thank you Mike thanks so much thank um, you thank you so much for having me 
And thanks to Feebunny and Chris Skelt for suggesting Terravision because uh, without your suggestion, Mitch might have had to wait another five years till I get round to do it for one of my episodes. Yeah, who can say how long that would have taken. Uh, Mike, before you go, social media, where can people get you and what you do? Uh, yeah, so you can find Evolution of Horror all the places where you get your podcast and you can follow us there on Twitter at EvolutionPod. Perfect. Mike, thank you so much. Thank you, Thank Mike. you. Thank you so much. So nice to dust off the listener's choice. Yeah, yeah. I actually feel like this is something we should have done again before now. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's weird that it's been like two years since we did one. Yeah, I think that like it's it's a really, really fun way to keep things interactive. The responses that we get from people are always really good. We should maybe start looking at doing this like every few months or so. I think so. Like, like, even let's, let's just install it just now as six months. Six months, yeah. I would say six months is an outer limit. Yeah. Yeah. on how long we leave it lovely um, but yeah huge thank you first off then to Fee Bunny and Chris Skelt for selecting Terrorvision which came out in the draw we all had a great time with it a great great pick and huge thanks as well of course to Mike Munster of the Evolution of Horror for returning and talking that film with us only one of the best horror podcasts out there absolutely one of the best in the biz go check it out I'm assuming that you have already if you haven't you cannot do better yeah However, we're done for another one. Uh, we will be back, though, of course, on Monday with Minisode 150. Holy moly. Yep. Uh, but we will not be doing anything particularly special on that, apart from talking about what we've been watching. Nature will be going wild. We'll be playing Mitch's Pitches. We'll be taking a look at your feedback. We'll be letting you know everything you need to know for next week's episode, which, once again, if I do say so ourselves, we've got a winner on our hands. Mitch, every Minisode is particularly special that's very true that's very true what makes them so special is that they're also indistinguishably special <laughs> if you want to get in touch with us between now and then you know what to do Facebook and Instagram are strong language violent scenes you can tweet us at strong violent PC join in the conversation on our Facebook group the Chud Locker and you can email strong language violent scenes at gmail.com yep and patrons eyes on the feeds guys eyes on the feeds as ever, got some good stuff coming. Patreon.com slash Strong Language Violent Scenes. Head over there, see if there's anything you like. Yeah, thank you very much, Mitch. We'll be back Monday for another mini-sode. See you then. Andy, any thoughts on what we're going to leave on today? I think we should go out on what both me and Mike, and presumably you, although you didn't massively climb on board, called it, referred to it as an absolute banger. This is the theme from Terravision. Very happy to co-sign on that. See you guys soon.
You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.